Gracious Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us. Use and overrule my words and all our thoughts so that your word alone may be spoken and your word alone heard through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It is such a joy for Meg and me to be back with you all this weekend. Um, last night's dinner was such a blessing. And the kind words that were shared are such an encouragement to us. Thank you for your most generous gift and for your love and support, and especially for your prayers. Um, thank you. Thank you for all that you do in continuing to support our diocese as well um, by providing, of course, the beautiful offices upstairs and serving the wider church by hosting so many events, including most recently our synod where we elected my successor uh, and hosting again our upcoming synod in just two weeks. So grateful for the leadership of this church. And again, I want to thank God publicly for the ministry of your rector, Scott. Scott, my friend, back there. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Scott, I, I praise God for your, your pastor's heart, for your love of the worship of God in word and sacrament, uh, and for your passion to share Jesus and serve him in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm so thoughtful for Scott's thoughtful, prayerful leading of this congregation. Um, as many of you know, Scott serves on our standing committee, which is like the vestry of our diocese, and I so value his wise counsel. And he's taken on a key role in planning the consecration service of my successor uh, in February, and for that I am very grateful. Um, Scott, you and Tammy are a great team. A great team. You're doing a wonderful job. Thank you, Lord. And my thanks to you, Jed, and for the many, many ways in which you serve God's church and your uh, partnership with Scott in, in leading this congregation, and especially for all that you pour out uh, in love and service to our young people. God bless you. Thank you for your faithfulness. And I'm, and I'm so delighted that Emily has joined you on staff and making this a team effort. I think that's just fabulous. And my thanks to, uh, to your deacons, to uh, Deacon Julie and, and Andy, who's not able to be here today, but thank you for all that you uh, offer, especially in pastoral care, uh, to people who are in need, to people who are hurting. Bless you for your tender heart. Thank you. And to the others on your staff team, uh, Desiree and, and Tara and Esther, thank you for all that you uh, offer to our Lord, all that you give in, in service of him uh, and, to this, and to this flock. Bless you, faithful ones. Uh, I, was, I was blessed to spend time yesterday afternoon with, uh, with the vestry. Um, my great thanks to, to Jim and to Walt and to the whole vestry for your wise and prayerful leadership of this congregation. Thank you for all that you pour out uh, in service to this faithful congregation. 
Um, I have to say, it's a special joy to see uh, Valerie, Mark, and Jessica here lined up. <laughs> I feel like, feel like my whole ministry is flashing before my eyes here. <laughs> it's really wonderful. Thanks so much for making, making the uh, special effort to, to be here. I'm so grateful. I also bring you greetings from our, from our Archbishop, Archbishop Foley Beach of the Anglican Church in North America, uh, sends his warm greetings to you all. Well, let's turn to the scriptures. In our gospel reading, uh, we hear Jesus teach his disciples in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he says some important things to us about God's law. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to say that God's law will not pass away, will still be in effect until heaven and earth pass away, till all of God's purposes are accomplished. Well, what are we to make of all that? So this morning, I'd like us to look at a foundational question for us as followers of Jesus. What is the purpose of God's law? In Scripture, in our worship, we're told again and again to honor and obey God's law. And yet at the same time, Christians know that we're not saved by being good enough. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us by dying in our place on the cross. And so some Christians ask, haven't I been freed from the law? Aren't we saved by grace? And if we're free from God's law, does that mean we don't have to obey God's law? If I'm saved only by what Christ has done and not by what I do, why should I try to live a holy life? Do I have to keep God's law? And if so, why? Well, those are great questions. In fact, once you've put your trust in Jesus, there isn't a more practical question than what is my relationship to the law of God? Because that question will enable us to answer a lot of other questions about how to live. How do I treat my spouse? Can I cheat on my spouse or cheat on my taxes? How do I respond when someone hurts me or when I hurt someone else? How should I spend my money? All of those questions hang on my relationship with God's law. Jesus said that his new commandment was for us to love one another. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13 that love is the fulfilling of the law. But does that mean that if you're loving, you're free to disregard the Ten Commandments? Well, that's actually what a lot of contemporary voices are arguing. Prominent evangelical mega-pastor Andy Stanley, son of the famous preacher Charles Stanley, um, Andy has argued in his sermons and in his book that the gospel needs to be unhitched, as he put it, unhitched from the Old Testament. He says we need to leave the Old Testament behind and move on without it. He even said in a sermon that he thought about putting up a slide on the screen that's, that read, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Now, he doesn't actually argue that we should violate the Ten Commandments, but he is saying that we must not follow them as authoritative for our beliefs or our ethics. And what about the 
church billboard that Meg and I saw in North Carolina alongside Interstate 40, advertising a church that claimed it had no rules, just Jesus. Is that the gospel? Is it enough to say that we're all about love? No, it's not, because that's not what the scriptures teach. So what is the proper role of the Old Testament law for us and for our lives? For example, in discussions about human sexuality, you sometimes hear someone argue that since the Old Testament forbids the eating of shellfish, and yet we eat crabs and scallops, it must be okay to violate Old Testament teaching about sexual morality. That argument is made not only on TV talk shows and in major newspapers, but in some churches and by some clergy who ought to know better. The shellfish argument sounds pretty convincing to many folks. What's the right Christian response? Well, it comes down to a proper Christian view of the law. You see, there are three different types of Old Testament law. The first kind is the moral law, and this includes the Ten Commandments. The moral law is still binding on Christians. After all, Jesus himself quotes the Ten Commandments and makes clear that they're still in force. The second kind of Old Testament law is called civil law, laws that govern civil society. My ox strays into your field, and I must make restitution in a particular way. Christians have always understood that civil authorities in each society are free to follow or change Old Testament civil laws as they think best for their context. The third kind of Old Testament law is the ceremonial law or the ritual law. This includes the laws about offering animals for sin and the dietary laws. And these are not to be followed by Christians. The ceremonial laws, which demanded the offering of animals, uh, those, those laws were replaced by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We don't confess our sins, pronounce God's forgiveness, and then say, let's go outside to the parking lot and sacrifice a goat just to make sure we're forgiven. I would obviously undermine the teaching that Jesus was the full and perfect sacrifice for sin. And as for the dietary laws, Mark chapter 7, verse 19 said, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. And that's why we eat shellfish and still obey the Ten Commandments. Now, the fact that there are three different kinds of Old Testament law has been understood by Christians for many centuries. In our Anglican tradition, this principle is clearly taught in Article 7 of the Articles of Religion, the 39 Articles. And that's also taught by many other historic Christian traditions as well. You know, sometimes we 21st century Americans think we're so smart that we must be the first people to ask such questions. But in fact, the church has long known these issues, and the church has taught God's answers. But if the moral law the God that God gives us in Scripture, if the moral law is still relevant for contemporary Christians, what purpose does the moral law serve? Well, the Apostle Paul says that the law was given because of sin, and Jesus said none of us keeps the law. 
But Paul explains that the one surprising purpose of the law is actually to increase sin. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin is increased, grace increased all the more. What a strange idea. The law was given to increase the trespass, to increase sin. Let me unpack that. There are four ways that the law increases sin. First, the law increases our awareness of sin. And it does that by defining what is sin and what is not. The law shows us where the boundaries are. The law shows us where we were sinning and didn't know it. Romans chapter 5, verse 14 says, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. In other words, sin and death existed before the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Before the law was given, people sinned. They sinned even though they didn't know it was sin because the law had not yet been given. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 puts it this way, through the law we become conscious of our sin. You see, just because you're not bothered by something doesn't mean God approves. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. You couldn't ask for a clearer biblical contradiction of the mindset of our culture, which says what matters is my truth. We're told, you may think something's wrong, but that's just your truth. My truth says it's okay for me to do it. But the Bible says the opposite. Feeling something is okay doesn't make it okay. It's the law that shows us the truth. The law shows where God puts the boundaries. And so the law increases our awareness of our own sinfulness. The second way the law increases sin is by increasing our conviction of sin. And this isn't just head knowledge where I might merely agree in theory that something was wrong. No, through the law, we come to know that sin grieves God's heart. When King David was confronted about his adultery with Bathsheba, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And then when he poured out his heart to God in Psalm 51, he showed that the, Lord, that the law had brought true conviction of sin. He said to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned. All sin is sin against God. And the law reveals this to us, and the law brings true conviction to our hearts. Third, the law increases our sinful behavior. Romans chapter 7 speaks of our sinful passions aroused by the law. The more we focus on a particular law, the more likely we are to break it. This is the wet paint sign phenomenon. You walk down the hall, and there on the wall is a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch. You see it, and what rises up in you is this almost irresistible urge to touch the wall. 
you had no interest in touching the wall until you saw the sign forbidding it. But now it's all that you can think about. But touching the wet paint isn't the sign's fault, it's ours. And our sin isn't the law's fault, it's ours. Romans chapter 7 verse 12 says the law is holy, righteous, and good. Yet our response to the law is to increase our sinful behavior and do the very thing the law tells us not to do. And fourth, the law increases our sense of moral helplessness and brings us to Christ. The Apostle Paul very vulnerably shared his own struggle with sin in Romans chapter 7. He wrote, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the thing I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see, the law shows us we can never save ourselves. We can never fully obey the law because it's not just about externals, it's about the heart. And so when Jesus taught about the law in the Sermon on the Mount, he said it's not enough not to commit murder. You mustn't nurse anger in your heart. It's not enough not to commit adultery. Don't lust after another in your heart. The law means so much more than just don't do bad things. The law means love God with your whole heart and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says we must love one another the way God loves us. And that's why Paul says love is the fulfillment of the law. But we simply cannot do this. The law shows us that we are incapable of loving God and loving our neighbor that perfectly. The law exposes our fallen nature. The law shows us our inherent sinfulness. And so, in desperation, we turn to Jesus, who alone can save us. The law was not given to make us perfect. Hebrews chapter 7 says the law made nothing perfect. The law was not given to save us. Galatians chapter 2 says no one will be made right with God by sufficiently obeying the law. The law was not God's plan A that failed, and so he tried the cross. As if God thought, let's give them commandments, that'll make them perfect. Oh no, they're still sinning, what do I do? Well, let's try the cross. No, <laughs> the cross was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And the law was given to show us our need for forgiveness through Jesus Christ. No one gets to heaven by being good, or by being good enough, or by being better than someone else. We get to heaven by being forgiven, by receiving the free gift of forgiveness and salvation that is offered to us only through Jesus, who died in our place. But once we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, once we have received his forgiveness, we seek in every way to live the life that he desires for us. And it's here that the law serves its other purpose. The law was also given so that it may go well with you as a Christian who is saved by grace. That's what Moses said to the people um, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
Moses reminded the people of the Ten Commandments, and then he wrote in Deuteronomy 5.29 what God had said about the law. He said, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their children forever. Now this idea that God's law brings life and wholeness and well-being runs all through Scripture. When the Holy Spirit first highlighted that verse for me, Deuteronomy 5.29, and helped me see that principle, I began to see it again and again and again in my daily reading of Scripture. And whenever I saw that truth in another passage in the Bible, I'd write in the margin next to that verse, Deuteronomy 5.29. And then I'd turn back to Deuteronomy 5.29, and I'd write the reference to that other passage there in the margin. Last time I checked, I had over 50 passages listed alongside Deuteronomy 5.29. Passages that declare that truth, that for us, as followers of Jesus, we obey the law so that life will go well for us. The law was not given to spoil our fun. It was given so that we would understand that life goes better God's way. Our culture increasingly rebels against the idea of commandments or rules or limitations on personal autonomy. We feel they're inappropriate, they're restrictive. We should be free to pursue our own path. But is that really right? Does God's law take away our freedom or does it give us freedom? In reality, God's law creates freedom. And it increases our experience of the joy that Jesus desires for us. There's a wonderful example of this that we used to use in the Alpha course. Some of you might remember it. A man tells about a soccer scrimmage involving one of his sons, age eight. A friend of his named Andy, who had been coaching the boys all year, was going to referee the scrimmage. Unfortunately, by the start of the game, Andy had not shown up. The boys just couldn't wait any longer. And so this poor dad was coerced into being the substitute referee. He described it later this way. There were a number of difficulties with my being the referee. I had no whistle. There were no sidelines marked on the field. I didn't know any of the other boys' names. They didn't have uniforms, so I couldn't tell which side they were on. And I didn't know the rules nearly as well as some of the boys. He said the game soon descended into complete chaos. Some shouted that the ball was in. Others said it was out. I wasn't sure, so I just let things run. Then the fouls started. Uh, some yelled, foul! Others said, no foul. I didn't know who was right. By the time Andy arrived, there were three boys lying injured on the ground, and all the rest were shouting mainly at me. <laughs> he said, but the moment Andy arrived, he blew his whistle, arranged the teams, told them where the boundaries were, had them under complete control, and then the boys had the game of their lives. So, were the boys more free without the rules, or were they in fact less free. Without any effective authority, they were free to do exactly what they wanted. 
And the result was that people were confused and hurt. They much preferred it when they knew where the boundaries were. Because then within those boundaries, they were free to enjoy the game. In some ways, God's law is like that. God tells us what's in and what's out. He tells us what we may do. He tells us what we must not do. And if we play within his boundaries, there is freedom and there is joy. James chapter 1, verse 25 says that God's perfect law is the law of liberty. Exactly. There is liberty under God's law. When we break the rules, people get hurt. God didn't say, do not murder in order to cramp our style. He didn't say, do not commit adultery because he's a spoil sport. God doesn't want people to get hurt. And when people betray their wives or husbands and children to commit adultery, families and lives are devastated. But Jesus says that when we live life God's way, we experience more of the abundant life that he wants us to enjoy. He puts his law in our hearts so that we respond to him with joy and we delight to do his will. As Christians, we live the same way we got saved, by grace. We study the scriptures and learn of his commands, not so that we will earn God's approval, not to add more oughts to burden us, not so that we can work our way into deserving salvation, but so that as sinners forgiven and saved by grace, we will discover more and more of the abundant life promised to us by our merciful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that really is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are fallen, broken people, sometimes defiantly rebelling against your law, and at other times overwhelmed by our failures or our guilt. Thank you that through your moral law, you show us ourselves as we really are so that we will turn to Jesus. Thank you for showing us the abundant life that you desire for us to enjoy. We invite you to continue your work of grace in each one of us, teaching us, convicting us, forgiving us, renewing and empowering us, that more and more we would truly know you and love you and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.